Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I actually think that there are three main points for me. And, you know, my, my dad was friends with this, with this artist, and his name was Rico McKeska. And he was a contemporary of Picasso's and never quite got to that breakthrough level of museum fame as, as some of his contemporaries did. But, but my dad knew him and, and, and he was a friend of our families. And, and my dad told me one time that, that he had incredible trouble finishing paintings. Like he could never finish a painting. And at one point, I guess he told him that there's a difference between European artists and American artists. And he said that a European artist will finish the painting and sign it. And it's just like, this is where I am now. In other words, my signing this painting is not testimony that it's complete. It's just testimony to this is where I am right now as an artist. And now I'm signing it. And here it is. It's done, so to speak. Whereas there's another mentality that it's not finished till it's ultimately perfect. And then, of course, you run the risk of never finishing it. So, so the, the point my dad was trying to communicate was that there is a great good in certain areas of life to be able to say you sign your name, not to say that this is like the ultimate, 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 but that it is a reflection of where I'm at right now. And now you move on to the next thing. And if you think about it, like emotionally, that's a very healthy way to go through life. So I'm offering you these three points, not as the ultimate three points, but this is my current understanding, okay? So, so if you want to boil down the relationship between us and God to three points, one is God is good. Two is you're not going to understand everything because God is infinite and you're finite. So number one, God is good. Number two, you're not, un- not going to understand everything. Number three, everything that's taking place is a love affair between you and God. Okay. The Torah portion starts with the mitzvah of keeping Shabbos, and then it gives us the instructions of how to build the Mishkan. And what I want to communicate is that this juxtaposition are not just two different ideas. This is literally the narrative of the history of the world is being communicated in this juxtaposition. Because the mitzvah of Shabbos is not just one day out of the week. Remember, God creates the world in seven days. But the Ramban, among others, says those seven days is actually the timeline of all of history. Those are seven millenniums. And the seventh millennium, which parallels the seventh day of the week, which is Shabbos, is the Messianic era, is this period called Yom Shekulo Shabbos, the day that will be all Shabbos. So in other words, Shabbos is simultaneously the seventh day of the week, but Shabbos is also the period of redemption. 
So the Parsha begins with, keep Shabbos. Oh, so it's talking about the great redemption. And then it says, make a Mishkan, which is code for you work six days out of the week, or you're going to work for 6,000 years to turn the entire world into a dwelling place for this light that we'll call the next year of the future of the world, the Messianic period, or Olam Haba. So when it says just, keep Shabbos, make a Mishkan, the whole history of the world is right there. It's like, the redemption is coming, fix the world. Okay, so let's, let's go deeper still. The Mishkan was a microcosm of the world, and it was a microcosm of a human being at the same time. I read this parable in, in a Reader's Digest, believe it or not, years ago. And years later, I realized, oh, that thing that I read is answering one of the deepest Torah questions, which is how can the Mishkan be simultaneously a miniature of the world and a miniature of a human being? How can it be both at the same time? So here's the parable. You ready? A father comes home from work. He's exhausted. He's just no energy. And he's got a little kid. And the little kid is so happy that the father's home. The little kid can't wait to play with the father. The father has no strength. Father just wants to sit down and read the paper. So he's got to figure out what to do. And when he opens the paper, he sees a complicated map of the world. And he gets an idea. He says, okay, I'll make a game out of this. I'm going to rip this complicated map of the world into a lot of different pieces. And I'm going to make a jigsaw puzzle. And he tells his, his little kid, he says, when you put together this map of the world, I'll play with you. And now the father is like, ah, okay. <laughs> He's got it all figured out. Now he can just relax with the paper. So a few moments later, the kid runs up to him and says, I did it. And the father's like, impossible. No, it's impossible. The father looks at the map of the world. The kid did it. Absolutely everything is done. The father says, how did you do it? And the kid says, it was simple. On the other side, there was a picture of a human being. And once, once I put that in place, the whole world became aligned, right? So again, you fix yourself, you fix the world. Because the Mishkan is simultaneously a miniature of ourselves and a miniature of the world itself. Okay. So how do we go about that fixing in the highest, most exalted way? Well, now listen to this. This, this teaching came to me over, the, over Shabbos. And I think Rav Frimer was saying something very similar in the Eretzvi. Maybe I'm going to say it a little bit differently. But it really, like, like I never heard of tshuva really put exactly the way I'm going to say it. You see, we've got two levels of tshuva. Tshuva, of course, means to return to God. And a person can return to God at every level of their life. In other words, they can, they don't even have to have done anything wrong to return to God. And you know something? After you, let's say you did something wrong and you're returning to God, you can do tshuva on your tshuva, meaning to say, you know what? I can return to God even better than I returned before. 
so there's the concept of doing chuva on chuva, if you if you can believe it. So so basically, you can think of chuva as repentance. But I'll tell you something. If anyone tells me repent, I can't run away from them fast enough. It's like that. That is one of the, in in my mind, one of the most ugly English words there in the, in the entire language. But chuva, like I don't want to repent, but return. I can't wait to return. All I want to do is return. Are you crazy? So so that's chuva. That's chuva. But you see, you've got two different forms of chuva. You've got chuva mi'ira and chuva ma'ava, which means that you've got chuva that's like coming from this place of yira or fear. Like, you know what? I got to stop doing that. Otherwise, I'm really going to get myself into hot water. And then you've got a different form of return, which is, God, I never wanted to do anything to separate myself from you to begin with. I didn't know. All I want is you. All I want to do is to be close with you. Okay. Now, our sages say something absolutely radical. If, if, I, if I said this, you'd have, in fact, I would want you to say, where are you getting this from? Stop making things up. Just teach me Torah. You know what I mean? We've got a very simple deal here. You say Torah. I try to do it. Don't make anything up. So if I said what I'm about to tell you, you'd think he made it up. But this is, again, Judaism 101, what I'm about to tell you, which is if a person comes back to God from a place of love, all of their wrongdoings in the past turn into mitzvot. Can you imagine? If you come back to God out of fear, God counts all your previous wrongdoings as mistakes. Now, mistakes, that's, that's, that's good. It's, they've become neutralized, basically. But to turn them into positive attributes, the mistakes of my past? A person can eat on Yom Kippur in their past, and now all of a sudden it becomes a mitzvah? How could it be? And I'll just tell you the logic of it, but I want to go deeper because ultimately what I'm about to tell you is going to be a big idea about love. But we, we have to get to it. Let me just tell you the, 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 the simple basics of this idea, the simple logic of it. All of us are the sum total of everything we've done up until this moment. Who are you? You are the cumulative repository of all of your actions and all of your thoughts. That's who you are. Okay. Now let's say I started off as not such a great guy. Right? And then let's just say I've become a really great guy. So that means that the wrongdoings of my past, since I am the sum total of all of my actions right now, that means my previous wrongdoings led to the good person that each of us are right now. Do you get it? In other words, you were you supposed to do that in the past? Were you supposed were you supposed to eat that hamburger on Yom Kippur? No. But did that hamburger on Yom Kippur somehow lead to you never ever eating a hamburger on Yom Kippur ever again in your life? Yes. 
So somehow, in retrospect, that wrongdoing led to the good person you are now. So in retrospect, if you return to God out of love, those wrongdoings became positive things because they pointed you into the direction that you are now. Do you understand the logic of it? It's divine. It's divine. All right. Now, let's get back to the Mishkan. Because again, the Mishkan is the ultimate vessel. On the one hand, it's it's you in balance with yourself. Because each person is a Mishkan. So that means that, remember, the vessels of the Mishkan are holy too. So it's, it's the ultimate example of your body and your soul like resonating on the same wavelength, right? Your body and your soul are perfect partners. That's, that's amazing. It's also like the world. But also on another level, historically speaking, the Mishkan the rabbis teach us, you ready for this, was a fixing for the sin of the golden calf. Okay, so let me just, before we get to the bigger idea, I gotta give you the basics first. Why? Because no one told us to make the golden calf. Remember what the Brisker Rav says. Is there, what's so bad about a golden statue? In the Holy of Holies, on top of the Aaron the ark that holds the Luchos, the tablets of the covenant, there were two golden angels in the holiest spot on earth. So you, there you see you have gold statues. What's so horrible about gold statues? And the Briskarav points out something so brilliantly simple. He says, God told us to make those. God didn't tell us to make the golden calf. Right? So in other words, with the golden calf, we made ourselves the final authority. We, we decided how we are going to serve God, right? I'll decide. Okay, that, that, that's, that's the deal breaker point, that type of philosophy. Okay, so now God says, you know what? Since you constructed this thing without me telling you to construct it, to make up for it, I'm going to tell you to construct another thing which is going to be way more complicated. And in constructing that thing, which I'm telling you to construct, you will be able to atone for this thing that you constructed without being told to construct it. Do you get it? Very, very straightforward. So the Mishkan itself becomes the fixing. And if you look at the account in the Torah, there's almost like a, almost like this obsessive that's the wrong word, but this, 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 this phrase that's repeated over and over and over and over and over again, which was that God commanded that we did it this way, and we did it that way, and we did it that way, and we did it as commanded, and we did it as commanded, and we did it as commanded. And it says it over and over and over again. Why? Because it was a fixing for the golden calf, where we did something that wasn't commanded. Do you get it? Okay. But now, let's get back to the more exalted point. Let's say someone, God forbid, worships an idol. So, then they go, what am I doing? What am I doing? There's no power to idols. And, and God told me, don't worship idols. That, by the way, if you, if you want to know, that is the number one prohibition in the Torah itself. 
don't worship idols. Number one. So let's say someone worships an idol and they say, you know what? What am I doing? What am I doing? I got to stop doing this. So they, they stop worshiping the idol. And let's say they take the idol then and they destroy the idol. So how good is that tshuva? In other words, how, how big did, did they return to God? Well, they stopped doing what they were supposed to not be doing. That's great. They destroyed the darn thing, so they're never going to do it again. That's great. But what about all the love that went into that worship while they were worshiping it? Do you hear that? I'm going to say it again. And now I'm talking about not just idol worship. I'm talking about any wrongdoing that we did over the course of our life. And you can use your imagination to fill in the details in your own life. What about all of the love that I put into doing what I wasn't supposed to be doing? What happens with that? How can I elevate that? And you know what the beautiful, amazing thing is? You can elevate it. You can bring that love back to God by loving God. And that's called tshuva me'ava. That's called tshuva with love. And that's why that is the ultimate, the ultimate return to God. Because you're not just ceasing your wrongdoing. You're taking all of the love that you put in the wrong places and you're reclaiming that lost love and you're bringing that love back to God. And that's what we did when we made the Mishkan. That's why the Mishkan was so great. And you know where you see? Because we kept on giving. Moshe said, we got to make a collection and we've got to, we got to make this thing and we're going to need gold and we're going to need silver and we're going to need copper and we're going to need all these expensive, super rare dyed fabrics. We're going to need all of these things. And what happened? The Jewish people gave and they gave some more and they kept on giving and they gave so much that there was too much. And then Moshe said, okay, now we have enough. Isn't that interesting? Once we had too much, we had enough. <laughs> How does that work? Once you give too much, you should have too much. <laughs> How is it that when you give too much, now all of a sudden Moshe says you have enough? Going with the way we've been explaining it, because when you have too much, do you know what you have at that point? Tshuva me'av. You have that ultimate manifestation of love because you gave on the level that's beyond. You know, if you haven't experienced this, I bless you should experience it. And I bless you should experience it with God. The idea of God, I love you so much. I, I can never thank you for even the smallest thing. I can never even thank you for even the smallest thing. See, if you're in that place with God, even if it's just for a few moments, you're in this place of too much, that's enough. <laughs> because you've arrived at the place 
of return out of love. And let me tell you something. If you look back on your past life and you still have enjoyment in previous wrongdoings, do you know what that means? Maybe you've stopped doing whatever, fill in the blank, whatever it is. Maybe you've stopped doing fill in the blank. But if you look back on those events in your life and you still have hana, you still have pleasure from them, you know what that means? That means that there's a little love still trapped into those past life events that haven't been mined out and brought back to God. So next time you sort of go, huh, remember when I, you know, in a private moment with yourself, remember that time? You know what God is doing at that moment? You think that that's the Satan leading you astray? It could be. But can I tell you on a deeper level what's going on? God is saying, ah, you left something over here. <laughs> you left something here. There's some gold under the bed, <laughs> right? There's a, there's a Van Gogh in the closet you forgot about. How do you forget about a Van Gogh in a closet? Well, who knows? There it is. Get it out. Get it out. Donate it to the Mishkan, right? And you're that Mishkan in this example. Okay, let's go deeper is being created and recreated every single moment. What did I tell you? The Mishkan is a miniature of the world. And the world is being created and recreated every single moment. And this hit me over Shabbos. It just, I almost fell over. You ready for this? Isn't it interesting that the world, which is being created and recreated every single moment, which is reflected in the Mishkan, that the Mishkan is unique in that it can be taken apart and be put back together again. Just like the world, which is being created and recreated again, that the Mishkan itself reflects that because the Mishkan can be taken apart and put back together again. Isn't that phenomenal? It's phenomenal. And how about this? We're also an aspect of the Mishkan, right? Because the Mishkan is also us. Do you know what that means? That as the world is being taken apart and being put back together every single moment, we can take ourselves apart and put ourselves back together every single moment. And let me give you an example of what that, what that means, okay? I'm gonna tell you a story from my own life and you could give a million examples, but I'm just gonna tell you this story. So I didn't go to yeshiva, okay? I didn't grow up like, with all these learning skills and everything like that. I didn't. So I was sitting in, in Los Angeles. They have like a satellite kolel. It's a Lakewood kolel. I was sitting in this Lakewood kolel in front of a Hebrew book. And really, I, my Hebrew is horrible. I, I, I you know, and, and I'm sitting next to this little boy, you know, who I don't know how old he was. Six years old, seven years old eight years old, something. He was a little kid. And I'm an adult, okay? And I'm like wrestling with this passage in Hebrew. I'm trying to figure out what, what this sentence says. I can't figure it out. And there's this key word. If I know this word, then maybe I have a chance at figuring out what this thing is, is, is saying. And I thought to myself, I bet this little boy knows the answer. I bet he knows what this word means. 
And then I thought to myself, I'm a grown man. How can I ask a Torah question to like a six-year-old? I can't do it. I can't do it. And then I thought to myself, why are you even here? And I thought, well, I'm here because I want the truth. And I said, if you want the truth and he has the truth, are you going to let yourself get in the way of finding out the truth? But I'm an adult. So take yourself apart and stop being an adult. Whatever an adult is. What is an adult? I don't know what an adult is. You either want the truth or you don't want the truth. So if what's getting in the way of you asking this little boy a question, then just take yourself apart. So I did. I asked him the question. And I just remember how hard it was. But I'm so glad that I did it. You see, you know, a lot of times what's standing in the way between us and getting closer to another person or us and getting to the next level, whatever it is, is that we've convinced ourselves that we're something. And you know what? That square peg doesn't go in the round hole. But you know what? Take yourself apart. <laughs> if you take yourself apart, then maybe you're not a square peg anymore. Right? Or I'll put it another way. You hit an obstacle. This is you, and then there's an obstacle in front of you, and you can't get past it. But if you take yourself apart, then you don't exist anymore. And then you can reappear on the other side of the obstacle. I don't know if, 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 if any of these things are possible without love. You see, when it comes to return, so many people approach the tshuva process, the process of return, by saying, you know, I, d I did this thing wrong. Why did I do it wrong? I got to do it right. Let me try to do it right. And basically, this is just one person's conversation with themselves. Do you understand? It's just an internal process. It's not bad. But there's something that's so much more exalted when you're in a relationship with God. So now let me reframe the conversation. God, why did I do this? I'm so sorry I did this. I don't know why. I didn't. You know, Rip Shlomo said by, I heard him say it more than once by, by Yom Kippur. He said, I never wanted to do it to begin with. It's not, I did it. Oh, okay, now I've got a stain on me. Now how can I get the stain off? I never wanted to do it to begin with. So now everything is reframed. Now I'm in a relationship. Now it's a love affair. Now it's tshuva me'ava. God, I don't know why I did this. I'm sorry I did. I know why I did it. Because at that moment, I wanted that more than you. But, but I wasn't thinking clearly. It says in the Gomorrah in Sota that a person doesn't do any wrongdoing unless a spirit of madness comes to them. Do you understand? It's like I wasn't thinking clearly. I'm sorry, God. But, but I want you. I don't want that thing. I want you. Now, this is, this is now a relationship. This is now love, love in play. I was thinking about what was that word that I asked him and was he even able to tell me what the word was? I actually don't remember any aspect of it. And then I thought, well, that's interesting <laughs> because you see a lot of times, really the most important thing is the effort that you put into something and it's not the results. And I put this phenomenal amount of effort into just getting past this blockage, right? And that's the part that I remember. And to me, that's very instructive for all of us because 
We don't control the results. This is one of the biggest Torah teachings there is. God demands of us the effort, but the results are in his hands. And this is one of the absolute keys to having tranquility in life. If you can go to bed knowing that you put in your full effort, then you know you did your job. And if you love God and if you trust God, then you know he's leading you to the right place. Right? So many of us are just putting in this direct correlation between effort equals results and we're endlessly frustrated. And one of the absolute ways out of it, because that is a false construct. All there is is the effort that's asked of us. And once we put that in, we are successes. We're, we are a success no matter what. And then God who loves us will guide us to the next step. Okay, one of the things that I, I like using just this opportunity to, to share thoughts with you guys is, is just to use it as a kind of a spiritual diary. Just, just what goes on in life and, and just to take it from a very personal place. So my wife has a lot of dreams and oftentimes they, they come true like this one's going to get married or that one's going to have a baby or something like that, oftentimes they, they come true. And a Rebbe told her that there's a reason why there's this like prophetic aspect. He asked her, are these people that you're davening for? And she said, yeah, yeah, the, the people that I'm having dreams about, I'm davening for. And he said, because you're praying for them, you are like um, connected to them on a very special wavelength. And because, because of that davening for them, these dreams result. In other words, you're, you're accessing them in a very spiritual, holy place. And as a natural product of your prayers for them, these dreams come, which reveal some information. So I thought that was, I thought that was a very interesting just idea, just, just to know. So anyway, I'm going to apply that in a fairly wacky way, <laughs> which is... There's this band that I've been listening to lately, uh, and I, I really recommend playing good music, and, and it's a opportunity to really connect to Hashem. You can do tshuva, you can just it can break your heart, you can cry and pray and all the rest. Music really can open your heart in this amazing, amazing way. And you know, ideally, you're listening to Jewish music, but if you're in a place where you listen to more popular music as well, you can still use that as a tool to transcend. And you can also alter the lyrics. I'll give you a very simple example. If the lyrics are saying, I love you, and it's maybe talking about a man and a woman, but you can be thinking that, God, I love you. In other words, you can change and elevate or recontextualize the lyrics to be about you reaching out to God. They, the lyrics can become prayers if you creatively work with them in the moment. With this in mind, I've been listening to this particular band and using it as a vehicle to connect with Hashem. And after weeks and weeks of this, out of nowhere, I, I wondered, wow, I wonder if they're ever in Los Angeles. And so I just Googled the band name and Los Angeles, and it came up, they were playing that Saturday night. And I was amazed. And, and maybe, maybe it's because like this idea of davening for someone, you're connecting to that person on this holy wavelength. 
So it could be that because I was tapping into their music on maybe a, a slightly higher level, could be that this information came to me that they're in town. So there you go. Anyway, so one of my greatest and most long-standing friends and I went to the concert last night. It was maybe, maybe the most special part of the night for me anyway. As we're going to downtown LA, which is just a, a business district, my friend says, you know, I grew up down there. And I was like, what? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 no. My dad had a factory down there. And I spent a lot of time growing up down, down in this, you know, very industrialized part of the city. And I was like, okay, that makes sense, you know. So anyway, we, we go to the concert and we're, we're coming back now. So this is several hours later. And I'm dropping him off at this other place and I'm on the highway and I miss the exit. And it's like, oh, okay, miss the exit. Okay, well, let's get off at the next exit then, right? But we're definitely off the, uh, off the official pathway at this point. And we're going through these small side streets of downtown LA, not well lit, not a person in sight, just this sense you're in this abandoned urban area late at night. <laughs> like you don't want your car to break down in this place. That's the feeling, okay? So it's just city block after city block, dark, dark side street after dark side street. And we stop at a stop sign or maybe it was a light. And then my friend goes, oh my God. And you know, it's like, what? And he's like, there's my dad's factory. And it was a very emotional moment because he said, I haven't been here in years. And just look at that, right? You know, miss the highway exit, <laughs> wandering around these dark side streets. And yet, I mean, should I put it in a very like uh, flamboyant way? God was leading us to this place. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> but let me just go with it for another moment. Rip Shlomo brought up something very deep and, and he, he based it in a Torah from the Ishbitzer Rebbe. And the question is, and we're going to talk about this, God willing, a lot today. The question is, what's closer to God? Your soul or your body? So I think... Probably, if you ask 10 people, all 10 people would say, well, your soul is closer. There's definitely a very strong argument that can be made in that direction. But listen to this. On Yom Kippur, the Kohen Gadol, the holiest person in the world, on the holiest day of the year, is going to give a very interesting offering to God, unique to Yom Kippur. You had to bring two identical goats and they were going to meet radically different fates. One goat was going to go on the Mizbeach, on the altar, in the Beis HaMikdash, in the Holy Temple. And that was going to atone for all sorts of wrongdoing among the Jewish people. It's, it's really, it's, 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 it's tragic that we don't have this vehicle anymore. It brought amazing atonement. But the other identical twin goat, you ready for this? got thrown off a rocky cliff in the desert and was basically torn apart as it fell down this rocky cliff. 
And this was this other form of atonement, and it's super deep if you go into the commentaries. And I, I don't want to go into the commentaries on it, but but trust me, you'll be well rewarded if you if you look into what that was all about, because it's 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 wild, basically. But anyway, here's the question: What's closer to God, your body or your soul? So now think about it. The kind Gadol is standing in front of these two identical goats, and he has to choose which one is going to this very elevated state and which one is meeting this very different fate, okay? So so how is he going to do it? How is he going to pick the right one? So the answer is the Torah actually provides the solution. There was a box, a closed box. And in, inside the box, there were these two different tags or lots, basically, Okay? It's, in fact, Purim is connected to this in a very deep way. So because this was this, a very interesting holy lottery that was about to take place. And the Kain Gadol would reach in with his hand without, you know, without looking. And he would pull out one of the lots. And this would say, you know, which one was going to go on the altar. And then the other lot would go, which one was going to go off the cliff. Okay. So we still haven't made the point yet. Again, what's our question? Is your body closer or is your soul closer to God? So now listen to this. This is now the end. If I were to ask you, and again, this is in the name of the Ishbitzer Rebbe. If I were to ask you, what is the highest part of your body? I think almost everyone would say their head, right? That seems fairly straightforward. But now listen to this amazing twist. If I put my arms above my head, what's now the highest part of my body? It's my hands. It's not my head. Or it's my body. It's not my brain. Do you understand? The hand is going in. In other words, the body is connected on this level beyond the mind where the body can pick this thing that the brain cannot figure out. It can know which goat is supposed to go where. And that information is conveyed to the Klein Gadol, to the high priest, through the agency of his hands, through his body, not through his mind, not through his intellect. And Reb Shlomo added to this. He said, have you ever walked down the street? We've all had this experience. Have you ever walked down the street and you just said to yourself, oh, I'm going to turn at this corner? And you turn at that corner and you meet a friend from years ago. <laughs> so who knew? Did your mind know? Your mind didn't know. But somehow your body knew. Okay. So, so let's talk about the mind and the body. And let's, let's, let's take it deeper. So just to connect it back to the story, just to wrap up the story in terms of driving that car, did my mind know anything? Clearly my mind knew nothing. <laughs> did my body know something? I, you'd have to say it did, right? But, but the amazing things about these things are is that while your body knows, your mind remains unaware. <laughs> that's, the, that's the freaky part of this. You would think, okay, my mind knows. Okay, so then I know. Or you might think, my body knows. Okay, so my body will tell my mind. But the body doesn't tell the mind. <laughs> That's the interesting part. The body doesn't tell the mind until 
ta-da, you're there. Then you go, oh, how did I get here? So there are all sorts of forces guiding creation. Guide, God is guiding creations. God is guiding creation in ways that we understand and in ways we don't understand until the moment arrives. And that's why it's so important not to give up. Because you see, you, you, you could think that, you know, re- reality, reality is operating on the wavelength to the extent that I can understand it. So, so whatever my grasp of reality is, is the sum total of reality and is the truth. But that's not the case. There are levels of reality that even your own body knows that your mind doesn't know. Much less that God knows that your body and your mind will never know. So, so that's why it's so important. You know, as they say, you got to stay in it to win it, right? Because even if you don't know, you might absolutely be heading toward the right direction. But you're never going to find out unless you actually show up. So that's why so much of life is just showing up. And, you know, the the way it was taught to me in such an awesome way is, like, the biggest aspect of life, right? You ready for this? Is developing good habits. Now, you want to keep everything new also. So we'll, God willing, talk about that today as well. You want to keep everything new. So you don't want habits to be too habitual. But at the same time, you want to have a Seder, basically. That's what we, that's the the Jewish shorthand for what I'm talking about. A Seder means that you're getting up at a certain time every day. You're going to Minyan. You're learning. You, You develop a Seder. You develop these good habits. And then that just sets you on the right course. And then even if you don't necessarily know where you're going, you're going in the right course. So that's the thing. All of us have to really develop really good habits. So let's get back to this idea of the mind and the body and and harmonizing the mind and the body. And I want to talk about the, the Mishkan, translated as the tabernacle in the desert, right? This was our, our shul, our synagogue in the desert that, 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 that we were with, you know, throughout. And, and it was the prototype of the Beis HaMikdash, the holy temple in Jerusalem. And, and, and yet there's something really amazing that's not discussed too often. The first Beis HaMikdash, the first holy temple was destroyed. The second one was destroyed. We're waiting for the third one to be built, which will be part and parcel with the fixing of the world and the arrival of Mashiach. But here's the part that's often left out. The Mishkan which was the basis of all of these three temples, was never destroyed. Isn't that interesting? We don't, we don't talk about that much because we go, okay, we, we're done with the Mishkan. You know, we moved to this next level, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. But it's very powerful and, and very instructive that the Mishkan, the DNA, if you will, that all of these places emerged from was never destroyed. Okay. So, the architect of the Mishkan was this amazing Torah figure named Betzalel. 
Bezalel was the, the ultimate holy artist. And not only that, but it says in, in the Torah itself that God gave him another gift. Not just the ability to create like divine art and as, as manifest in the, the vessels of the Mishkan, right? But Hashem also, Hashem also gave him this holy ability to teach. So he had this divine gift to teach. And so when you put these two things together, it's interesting that the, the art school in Israel is called Betzalel, named after him. Because Betzalel not just had the, didn't just have the ability to create, but he also had the ability to teach. So what better name for a school could there possibly be, right? So, so that's Betzalel. Now, here's, here's something that I want to start to focus in on. And again, we're talking about the body and we're talking about the soul. Now, I'm holding here a coffee mug. And the reason why I have it in front of me is because there's coffee in it. If this mug was empty, I wouldn't be carrying it around the house. In other words, the, the utility of this vessel is what's in the vessel. It's just meant as just this carrying tool for what's in it. So in other words, the essence of it is not the thing itself. It's the function and the utility of it. The fact that it can carry coffee. Okay, I think that's clear. And that's the way vessels are for the most part. But let's, let's talk about the vessels that Betzalel made. All right, you ready for this? The vessels themselves were holy. <laughs> now, this is very different than what I just said, right? In other words, it wasn't just the contents of the vessel that were holy, like the offerings that we would bring to God, but the vessels themselves were holy. All right, so what did I tell you we were talking about? The body and the soul. You see, in Torah, and, and a lot of people aren't familiar that Judaism has a very strong opinion about this. We don't just say that the body is this, like, um, this, this, this vessel, like a coffee mug, that's to hold the good part, which is your soul. And you kind of, your body just kind of transports your soul. You know, I'll tell you a story. One time I was in the mikvah. And, you know, you have two types of mikvahs. You have the people mikvah, and then you have what's called the kalim mikvah. You know, because certain things, if, if you buy something that's glass or metal, before you use it in your house, you have to take it to the mikvah. But you don't take it to the person mikvah. There's, a, there's another type of mikvah, and, and you take it there. So every community has what's called kalim mikvahs, okay? And there's a blessing that you say before you put it in. Unless this product was made in Israel, in which case you probably don't say a blessing. But anyway, that, that's the way it is. Now, they really discourage bringing kalim, like pots and pans, to the people mikvah. You're not supposed to do that. But, you know, Erev Shabbos, when a lot of people, including myself, go to the mikvah, 
a lot of times, you know, there's like a cooking that needs to be done at the house and there's some like last minute stuff and everyone's rushing before Shabbos. So sometimes you see people will bring pots and pans to the people mikvah, which again, you're not supposed to do, but you know, it's like people are rushing. So it is what it is. Anyway, I was in the mikvah this one time and there was someone standing in, like in the mikvah in front of me because, you know, by men, it's, it's a much more relaxed, different situation than the mikvah is with women. So, so anyway, there's, there's, a, there's a man in front of me and he's dunking his pot, right? He's standing in the mikvah, he's dunking his pot. And then there's this man behind me and he's also dunking a pot. And then I'm standing in the middle of them and, you know, going underwater myself. And then I thought to myself, I'm also dunking a pot. I'm dunking my body. My body is a pot that's holding my soul. You know, so we're all, we're all dunking pots here. Okay. So you can think of your body as this, as this vessel that just is this kind of thing like a pot. But that's actually not what the Torah is saying. The Torah is saying that your body is also holy. It's not just your soul that's holy. Your body is holy also. And what is the greatest manifestation of this? And what I'm about to tell you, I want you to really like get this idea before I say the next point. What I'm about to tell you is not a mystical idea. It's not like, oh, this is from some Zohar somewhere, or this is like an, you know, I think people tend to think there are certain extra credit Judaism ideas. Like, I don't have to believe any of that. This is like an extra credit idea, right? This is not an extra credit idea. This is a basic tenant of Judaism, which is in the end of days, sometime, some period, a little unclear what the amount of time is going to be, but some period after Mashiach arrives and the base of Migdash is built, there will be a mass resurrection of the dead. <laughs> and this is considered an absolute tenant. Judaism 101, okay? Very, very important, very important. You know, there's uh, Werner von Braun, when expect to hear him mention in a Torah class. He was a very, you know, he was, he was a Nazi rocket scientist. Let's just put it flat out, okay? However, there was a very interesting political thing that happened after World War II, which was that the United States wanted to compete with the Soviet Union. And therefore, there was this race for scientific minds. And so the United States made this overture to many top German Nazi-affiliated or Nazi scientists and brought them over to the United States to help with what emerged as our space program, but also rocket program and things like that. Werner von Braun was probably the most prominent example of this. And whether, you know, whether he was a Nazi, full-fledged in terms of believing in terms of Nazi theory or not, is, I think, something that's somewhat debated, but, but he absolutely was a member of the Nazi party. 
Either way, a lot of those people were just kind of playing ball with the government because they just wanted to continue what they had to do. And so they, they made a deal with the devil, so to speak, to continue what they were doing. Whatever his personal story was, I don't know. But the point is, is that he came over to the United States and assisted with the U.S. space program. Okay. So there's a quote from him. And, and the reason why I'm going into detail about his life is you wouldn't imagine that he's the most spiritual individual. So, so that's, why I, that's why I think that this is, for me personally anyway, that this is meaningful. He's talking about rein, reincarnation. And he believes in reincarnation because he says that energy is conserved. And that one of the greatest, like, epicenters of energy in the world is the human soul. So how could it be that the human soul just disappears? In other words, the the energy of the human soul has to be conserved and go someplace. And he saw this using this type of scientific thinking, the the thinking of a physicist, which I think is so interesting, that he saw the the spirituality of physics, if you will, and was applying it to the human soul. And so, so what I'm suggesting is like just extending this idea that it's not just reincarnation. And by, by the way, Judaism believes in reincarnation. This is one of the big like surprises to people today because that's like considered to be an exclusively Eastern religious thought. It's very much a Jewish thought. But this energy continues even after our lifetime, and we're repurposed back into our bodies. That's an amazing thing. Now, how does that work at that point? Because there's total harmony between the body and the soul. See, right now, we're at war with ourselves. And that internal struggle is reflected in terms of the world at large. See, one of the biggest things a person has to understand in terms of your own spiritual journey and spiritual maturation, right, is, is, the, is this idea. You fix yourself, since each of us is a microcosm of the universe, You fix yourself, you fix the world. You know, so many of us, like, we we begin to get a little more religious, a little more spiritual. And the first thing we do is we turn our attention on the other person and say, why aren't you doing this and why aren't you doing that? I mean, the most amazing example of this I ever saw in my own personal life was we had many, this was many years ago, we had this couple over for Shabbos, we had there were a bunch of people there, but this one couple, and I don't think they had ever been to really a Shabbos table before. And now came time to wash your hands before bread. And, you know, I, I told him, you know, you know, you, you, you want to take off your wedding ring, so you don't want anything in between your hands and the water. So he took off his wedding ring and everything like that. Then he sits down at the table and he turns to his wife, who I guess you know, in the little melee before the washing of the hands. No one had told her that, right? And so he said to her, 
you didn't take your ring off before you washed your hands? And I thought to myself, this guy knows one thing. He knows one piece of information and he's already using it to hit his wife over the head with. Can you imagine? So, so, so many people are like this. It's like, it's like the, the information that they learn becomes a club in their hand. I'll tell you how Reb Shlomo said it. He always used a phraseology that I always thought was like, it just, it just surprising way of putting it. He, he would say it like this. Why are you biting people? He, he would, he would call it biting. Why are you biting people? And I just, it just struck me. So I remember I was talking with this guy. He was married to a woman, just an amazing couple, by the way. Again, this was years ago. And he had a head start in terms of his kind of Torah journey um, ahead of her. So he was a little bit more, you know, developed in terms of his practice than, than she was. And he was kind of bemoaning to me that, that, that she wasn't further along, right? And I said to him, I said, does she see you learning? Do you have a learning schedule? Does she see you learning that you're like really focused on that? And he said, no. I said, you know something? If you up your game and she really sees that you're devoting energy toward lifting yourself up, then she's going to want to do the same. So many times we think that the way to be the greatest advocate of these ideas is to be the most inspired orator, right? Like, oh, if I can just make a better argument for it or persuade people better. But that's not it. If you Make yourself into something higher, into something greater, and then you will overflow. And that overflowing of energy will be something that's communicated to other people in the most beautiful way. And oftentimes you won't have to say a single thing. They'll just see you doing it this way and they'll go, oh, that person does that. I want to do that too. It says in the Torah that the nations of the world are going to look at the Jewish people and go, is there a more inspired people? And the Torah is talking about the fact that we're just kind of doing our thing. But if we do our thing in a beautiful way, it's going to radiate and just send out like, the greatest light and inspiration. And, and that's how you harmonize the different competing energies of the world. So in other words, you fix yourself, you fix the whole world. That, that's the model. Okay, but right now we're at war with ourselves. And so the, war, the world is at war with itself. That's what it is. Now, what was, let's go deeper now. What was the greatest vessel in the world. We're talking about vessels, right? What was the greatest vessel in the world? And the answer is the Beis HaMikdash. Or, even before then, what Betzalel made the Mishkan. And it was all by divine instruction. And what was the Mishkan a vessel for? It was to hold this exalted light of Hashem. Now, I want to talk about this because this, this is a model that most people don't think in terms of the Mishkan as. 
Most people think of the Mishkan as it's this, this place, this location, and I go into the Mishkan to do certain things like offerings to God, especially to like repair any, anything that I did wrong. Okay? So they think of it as a place and a place to accomplish something spiritual. Okay. But I want to just like, just let's rewire our brains for a moment. Let's think of it in a different way. The Mishkan is a vessel below to hold an exalted light above. And if we have this vessel in the world below, we can hold this amazing light from above, which means that the revelation of the oneness of God is going to be amazingly more, amazingly more revealed in the world. In other words, to the extent that we can have this Mishkan, we're going to experience the oneness of God in the world much more. That, that's what we want. That's what we want. So I just want to just tie everything together. This idea of vessels and light, body and soul, the Mishkan and the Shekhinah, and how it all fits together in the most amazing way. Okay? So we know again that the Mishkan itself was a microcosm, was, was a miniature of the entire world. And when God created the world, God created the world out of the Hebrew letters. And again, it's, this is our mystical tradition. It's not that God took the letters Dalid and Tuf and hammered together the two of them and made Detroit, right? Like God didn't make the world out of the letters the way we see the letters. That's not it. The letters are wavelengths of energy. They're energy wavelengths. And God took these different energy wavelengths and he created the physical universe out of it. And again, we always reference Einstein with this, right? That energy becomes mass. So the roots of the letters, the roots of the letters is energy. And God combined these energies to make the physical universe. Okay. Now listen to this. The fixing of the golden calf was the building of the Mishkan. Meaning to say, when we got the Torah at Mount Sinai, the entire world had become, was like, just like, just the tiniest step away from the ultimate redemption. The Gomorrah says we were like Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, before we ate from the tree of knowledge. We were in this amazingly exalted place. Death disappeared from the world. Our bodies and our souls were completely integrated. And then we make the golden calf and everything gets, it's cacophony. You know, harmonically speaking, it's absolute cacophony in terms of just sending disorder back into the world. And now the Mishkan is going to be a miniature of the perfected world again. The Medrash says that God celebrated when we made the Mishkan like he did when we created the world. Now, you ready for this? Salel makes the Mishkan, and what does the, what does the Torah teach? How did he make the Mishkan? How did he make the vessels for the Mishkan? Because he knew the secret of the Aleph base. Do you understand? He knew how to combine the energies of the letters of the Torah to create the Mishkan. 
Does that sound like God making the world? That's exactly the point. Do you see how it's a perfect parallel? And so what Betzalel is able to do, what God is, 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 is able to do through us through, to, as just this ultimate fixing is to stabilize the energies of the world again after the golden calf by recreating the world again, so to speak, through the olive base, through the energies of the world again. Do you see? Now listen to this. It says in Shmos Rabbah, right? The Medrash teaches, what divine name was Betzalel using, right? When he did all this with the olive base, with the letters of the alphabet, the name Shakai, that's Shin Dalid Yud. All right, when God created the universe, and tell me if this sounds familiar, but we had this thousands of years before, God took one tiny, you know, just the, the smallest bit of matter, the most microscopic bit of matter. And then he expanded it outward until it became the physical universe. Does that sound like the Big Bang? That's the Big Bang. We had it thousands of years before science said it. Where, what was that little dot of creation? So the rabbis teach something phenomenal, that it was the foundation stone of the base of Migdash, of the Holy Temple which means the entire universe is one holy temple. You understand how the whole universe is made out of the DNA of the holy temple. That's where we live. So when we say that the Mishkan itself was a miniature of the holy temple, the universe itself is a holy temple. So the Mishkan being a miniature of the holy temple makes perfect sense. Because everything is worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds. Okay. Now, at a certain point, the universe is expanding from that initial point, And then God says this divine name, Shakai, which means enough. Meaning to say, at that moment, God saw the perfect balance between the spiritual and the physical. And that's what the Mishkan does. The Mishkan harmonizes the energies of the world and realigns this perfect balance between the physical and the spiritual. And we have to be able to do that as well. And here are now two practical tools. And we'll end with this. We have to learn how to say Shakai also. We also have to know what's enough. When is it enough? What is enough in your life? You know, one of the amazing things is in the base of Migdash, in the Mishkan as well, you had something called the Shulchan. That was the table. It was this golden table where the Lechem Apanim were, these loaves of bread were, okay? And they stayed fresh all week. That was one of the many miracles of the Mishkan. And it says that when God would send livelihood into the world, like the blessing for, for money, basically, for cash, for, for, you know, sustenance, that this blessing would come down into the world through the Mishkan or the Holy Temple, and it would land, so to speak, where the Lechem Apanim were, where the bread was on this golden table. And then it would spread out this blessing to the entire world from there. 
Now listen to this. In terms of crafting this golden table, it had to have a golden border around it. If you look in the Torah, you'll see there's this description and make a golden border around it. Okay? So the Kliyakar says the following. When it comes to your livelihood, because that's that's this golden table, is our livelihood, right? When it comes to the when your livelihood, there has to be a border around it, meaning to say you have to know what is enough. How much do you actually need? What is enough? So that's tool number one. When you're eating, right? What's enough? What's enough? And the next tool is joy. Because you know something? If I'm not connected to something higher, enough will never be enough. If I'm just having a conversation between my own physicality and my mind, I can intellectually know what enough is, but I'm going to eat anyway because it's not in my heart. The heart has to be connected to something higher to understand enough. And you know how you get to that place? Through joy. Because joy is the ultimate fixing. You know, I always quote Rabbi Sammy and Trader. He said, you know, when we're fixing the month, when we're fixing the calendar, the sun and the moon have to be aligned, meaning to say that we have a commandment that Pesach always happens in the springtime. But if we're purely a lunar calendar, then Pesach is going to be all year long. Like the Muslims have a purely lunar calendar, and Ramadan can be anywhere during the 12-month period. But not for us Jews. We have primarily a lunar calendar, but Pesach always has to be in the springtime. So how do you do that? By adding an extra month every so often, like we're about to do this week. Okay? Now listen to this. Adar, the extra month that we add, is the month of joy. But technically speaking, you could have doubled any month of the year. So what does Rabbi and Trader say? That we double Adar because joy is the ultimate fixing. That you can fix anything through joy. And that's why we're doing it. Now listen to this. I want to add to this teaching. What does it mean that joy aligns the sun and the moon. Well, the sun is daytime. That's when things are going well in your life. The moon is night. That's when things aren't going well in your life. So what allows us to align the good times and the bad times? To see the coherence, to be able to see that we're not at the finish line yet, that there's always more that we can reframe. Because a lot of times depression kicks in because you think that you're at the end. But what if you reframe it and you realize you're not at the end? But how do you reframe? How do you reframe? And that tool is through joy. Through joy, you can do any type of fixing. Through joy, you can rebalance the body and the soul. You can make yourself the clee for the ultimate light, the vessel for the ultimate light. And now, we'll just end with a famous Torah question, but I want to give a new answer to it. The Parsha about the Mishkan begins with the mitzvah of Shabbos. It says, keep Shabbos 
and then it says make the Mishkan. So I want to say the connection is like this. You see, what is the Mishkan? It's a vessel. But what is the ultimate vessel? The ultimate vessel is this world. We want to turn this world into a dwelling place of God. Or we want to reveal that the world is a dwelling place of God. So we're trying to turn the whole world into this amazing vessel. And that's what we're doing. That's all of our work since the Garden of Eden till Mashiach is turning this world into a vessel. And once we turn it into a vessel, what's it going to hold? Shabbos. But not just Shabbos. Yom, the great Shabbos, the time when every day is going to be Shabbos, the Messianic period. And that's what I want to say is the structure on a deeper level of this week's Parsha. It begins with the mitzvah of Shabbos and then tells you to make a Mishkan. In other words, it's telling you Mashiach is coming. That's Shabbos. Shabbos, Yom Shekulo Shabbos, the day that will all be Shabbos. And now, just make the vessel to hold it. Because the redemption's already here. Now we just have to make the vessels. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.